Sweet tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new sweet tarts gummies fruity splits. A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet tarts, dare to combine. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I saw the mansion, I saw, you know, Porsches and Lamborghinis and all these cars, and I said, I want to play here. I want to play with this band. And we almost got in a fist fight with them, too, because somebody from Black Sabbath stole a bag of pots from us. They were a little roadie and punched him in the face. And our singer, uh, Rusty Day, he carried guns and knives and everything, so it wasn't a good idea to get in a scuff with him, you know? I always say that seven minutes have changed my life. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now this week's guest is an absolute legend. Carmine Apice is known as one of the true innovators of the heavy rock scene. In fact, John Bonham learned from him, as did many other of the world's greatest drummers. Now, a warning straight away, if you've not already noticed, this is a long episode. I usually try and keep the shows to about half an hour, 40 minutes max, a couple of exceptions, obviously. But I spoke to Carmine for over an hour. In fact, he he showed me around his garage as well, his lovely Jaguar XF casually parked next door to his Maserati. Yes, indeed. It was only the fact that he realised he had another interview lined up that we had to cut the chat short. And he ended the interview telling me that we had to do it again, and his PR guy messaged to say, Carmine really enjoyed it. But I'll tell you what, he didn't enjoy it half as much as I did. Now, the reason I started this podcast series, speaking to these world-famous rock stars, was to hear their incredible stories behind the big names, the big groups, the big albums, the big songs, and get it directly from the rock stars themselves. And Carmine was full of them. The interview was packed full of big names and crazy stories, including the likes of Rod Stewart, Led Zeppelin, Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne, Jeff Beck, Motley Crue's Tommy Lee, and many more. It really is a great interview. 
Now, just quickly before we get into it, though, I just want to say thank you for the response to last week's episode, the interview with Dave Mason, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer himself. Now, it became one of the most listened to first weeks of any episode so far on the series. It's incredible. I've had some great feedback from it, too. So thanks to everyone that was in touch on email and on social media as well. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, get on the Vintage Rock Pod Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, that sort of thing. Give them a like, a follow, a subscribe. That would be lovely. Right, let's get into this then. Here's my interview with the wonderful Carmina Peace. I'm delighted to welcome the creator of heavy rock drumming as we know it, blazing the trail that John Bonham, Ian Pace and others have followed since. He's a key member in the bands Vanilla Fudge and Cactus, as well as with Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck in BBA. And his role of honour includes Ozzy Osbourne, Michael Schenker, Pink Floyd, King Cobra, Jan Ackerman from Focus, Ted Nugent, Pat Travers, Sly Stone, Paul Stanley, and a whole host of other people I've probably not mentioned too. He's still touring and releasing new music today. Vanilla Fudge and Cactus have live dates this month and next and he has a new album out with APP the Apice Padermo Project 2 there's an awful lot to dive into I'm delighted to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod the one and only Carmine Apice hello Carmine hello how are you I'm good I'm good it's great to speak to you absolutely lovely to speak to you yeah it's, uh, I've been a long time since I've been in England so you know, I always loved England we actually have a live BBA record supposedly coming out shortly I don't know exactly when uh, live 1974 at the London Rainbow, and it has uh, seven new songs and three of the old songs on it. Wow. And it sounds really good. I mixed it with Jeff Beck's uh, engineer a few couple of years ago. Uh, his manager is putting together a deal. I don't know what's taking him so long. Well, maybe they're <laughs> waiting till next year when it was kind of the 50th anniversary of when we got together, you know, originally. Yeah. You know, so I don't know, maybe they're waiting for that, but, you know, I figure they're English, they're, they're slower than we are. <laughs> <laughs> Taking our time, having a cup of tea, exactly, that's what we're doing. <laughs> they're probably having a cup of tea, but I love England, I love, I love Jeff, especially when I went, was there with Rod, it was amazing. You know? Yeah. Four nights at Wembley and six nights <laughs> at the Olympia, and just amazing stuff. Absolutely, it's such a phenomenal career you've had so far, Carmine, and it's just truly... I've been blessed. Absolutely, absolutely. I wish I could speak to you for hours about this, but we're going to have to condense some of it, so we'll we'll, we'll pick out some of the big bits. And Let's start at the beginning then. Obviously, Vintage Rock Pod, we like to hear about all the big names and the big things, and let's start with with Vanilla Fudge. I mean, it's an historic name in in rock, and you guys uh, weren't originally called Vanilla Fudge, though, were you? I mean, I'm Ertigan, whose name pops up. That's it. I'm Ertigan's name pops up a lot on these interviews, and he wasn't a big fan of that name, was he, your first name? Well, we didn't care. It's the Atlantic Records said, that name sucked, you have to change your name. (laughs) So we had this woman that was uh, hanging out with us, and she said, you know, you guys are like white soul, like Vanilla Fudge. We said, oh, that's a good name, Vanilla Fudge, because at the time there was Strawberry Alarm Clock and stupid (laughs) names like that, you know. And we said, oh, why not Vanilla Fudge? At least it means something. Well, where's the strawberry alarm clock? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anyone that has an alarm clock ready strawberries. Do you? <laughs> we went with that, and Atlantic liked it, and that was it. You know, so when it came out, it was it was weird getting used to it first because when we had an area that we were big in, like in Newport, Rhode Island, they would say like tonight, Vanilla Fudge, formerly the Pigeons. <laughs> we had a following as the Pigeons, you know. 
Pretty funny. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Now, you guys created a sound, a heavy sound, a slower sound than what was around at the time. And famously, um, Richie Blackmore said that Deep Purple were wanting to be Vanilla Fudge uh, clones in back in the early days of the band. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. What was it about that sound and that, that you guys loved so much then? And what was the process that you went through when you're in recording some of these songs? Well, it, it all it really started from the Rascals, you know. The Rascals were, were a New York band that got really famous and, and they did some duo over songs like Midnight Hour and Mustang Sally and stuff like that. And then uh, there's a fad that was going around in Long Island with the Leslie Wessers in a group called the, the Vagrants. And Billy Joel was in a group called the Hassles. You know, and we used to all do rearrangements. That was the fad in Long Island. And the vagrants were the biggest. They used to draw on a weekend, 2,000 people to my manager's club, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what, uh, when the pigeons asked me to join them, that's what they wanted to do. This new fad music, all the arrangements were original, Mm -hmm. but the songs were famous songs. And we would redo all the songs and like rearrange them totally. And what our concept was to match the music and the emotion of the lyrics together, right? So the, like, you keep me hanging on, and listening was, set me free, why don't you be? It was like a happy song, but really not happy lyrics. And uh, so we married the emotional music to the emotional lyric with emotional vocals, and that's what happened there. You know, it was great. And it became our hit. And we noticed every time we played that song, people would, Stop trying to dance songs, which you couldn't do anyway. <laughs> but they stopped trying, and they would all come to the front of the stage and watch the, this crazy animated band, you know. And you know, we were also, you know, like all arms. And then, yeah. if you look at the Ed Sullivan show, you know what I'm talking about. It's just <laughs> wild. It was a wild band in those days. Bands just used to stand there, especially English bands, you know, the Her- Hermits, Hermits, and Jerry and the Pacemakers, <laughs> and the Beatles, and and the Stones, or, you know, nobody really was animated and wild, except for maybe the Who. We were, like, musically wild, and we were physically wild. So between that and the fact that we had four voices, yeah. and we picked the, the correct songs, and we married the songs to the music, like, people get ready, we married it to, like, a gospel kind of vibe, because that's what it was. Eleanor Rigby, you know, it was... I mean, the Beatles did it amazing with the quartet, but we took it and put it into an eerie setting, almost like a, an eerie soundtrack to the mm, lyrics. Yeah. You know, same season of The Witch. And uh, she's not there. We slowed it down, made it yeah. emotional. Yeah. And that's what we did. So uh, would you keep me hanging on? We went in, recorded, and one take mono, everything once. I always say that seven minutes have changed my life. Did you ever hear from, you mentioned Eleanor Rigby, or Time of the Season, did you ever hear from people in the bands, the Beatles, the Zombies, about what they thought of your versions of these songs? Well, I, I, I heard from um, uh, Holland Dozier Holland that wrote You Keep Me Hanging On, and they said out of all the covers, Vanilla Fudge is by far way above. They loved it. They said it's the best cover we've ever had. And... Uh, when I was a Rod, Rod said to me, Mo, I love the way you guys did that so much. I wish I would have done it. <laughs> and I said to him, well, let's do it. I'm in the band. It's a good excuse. So we did it. And he yeah. sang it great. And we did a very similar arrangement of Vanilla Fudge, except the middle section with Tom Dabbard and an orchestra. And that was awesome. And Rod sang it. And I sang the same kind of doo-doo-doo-doo in the background parts that I did with Vanilla Fudge <laughs> and played pretty much the same drum part. 
Fantastic. But it was stuff. awesome. But you know, and that just um, started our career. And 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 the sound of that song, I get. I don't know. Maybe because it was mono, it sounded heavy. Mm, you know, yeah. the bass drum was really big and fat. Yeah. It sounded like Led Zeppelin's bass drum. You know, and the, the drum sound was like that kind of sound. You know, it was very R and B, but big and fat. And and with Tim right there with me, it made it really heavy. You know, versus the other bands, even the Rascals. I mean, the Rascals never had a bass player, so Dino, even though he played a twenty-four inch bass drum, which at the time was big, then I started playing twenty-six bass drums and all the toms and everything big because everything was getting so loud. All the amps, you know, Marshall amps and and big bass amps and stuff. You couldn't even hear the drums unless you they got bigger. So I got a bigger bass drum to be heard. And then when I got a Ludwig endorsement, I got everything big. So that sort of helped create this whole heavy rock drumming thing that I, I got into. I, uh, listen, I used to put a bass drum mic inside my bass drum <laughs> and run it into Tim's bass amp. Now, you mentioned Led Zeppelin quickly there. I mean, when they came to the to the U.S., they, they supported you. They opened for you, didn't they? Yes, I mean, they how did. was that hanging with, with those guys? Well, it was good. We knew Jimmy, and the other three guys were brand new. Nobody knew who they were. Matter of fact, the very first gig, we didn't even need them. The promoter didn't want them on gig. The pay was $1,500. <laughs> and the promoter said, we don't need you. We're sold out already. We don't need you. But uh, our agent was their agent. And he worked out a deal where Vanilla Fudge paid them half from Offy, And the promoter paid half. Yep. But when they got on that show, people were yelling, bring on the fudge. And, you know, like, <laughs> when they were on stage, you know. That changed quickly. <laughs> they were an awesome band, but we, we recognized the talent that they were. We, we knew they were going to be big, but we didn't know they were going to be that big. It's hard to understand now because John Bonham and, and, and that Led Zeppelin is so big, you know, like the Beatles, you know, that they were totally yeah. unknown. When John Bonham came on the tour, you know, he told me he was a. a a fan of mine, he said he, he liked you know, my style and all that. And, that, and he had that triplet on Good Times, Bad Times. And I love that. I said, well, I love that triplet. That's awesome, man. Where did you get that? And he said, I got it from you. I said, I don't do that. <laughs> and he pulled, worked it out on my, on the, I think it was the third Vanilla Fudge record, where I did that just for maybe two bars, you know? Because in those days, we just used to go in and play. We didn't plan everything like they do today yeah you know we just did what we did you know this is how we rehearsed it when i went in and recorded it i played it similar to when i rehearsed it, but it wasn't exactly the same it was never the same if i had to do videos back then for vanilla fudge songs forget about it i wouldn't even be able to play what i played <laughs> because i don't know what i play you know and that's the way it was so so he pointed it out i saw like i didn't even know i did that and he just did it repetitively and came up with that triplet. And then I didn't, know, I didn't recognize it. And, and then we became friends. And then he loved my big drum set. And he said, do you think you can help me out and get a, a Ludwig endorsement and get a drum set like yours? I said, I don't know. Let me call him. So I called him. And I told him, I think this band is going to be big. The understatement of what, five, six decades? You know? <laughs> And, uh, and on, on my word, and uh, we sent him the record, they, they gave him a, a kit just like mine, double bass drum and big 
toms and big bass drums and big snare drum, which he used for the rest of his career, basically. In the second tour, there were two bass drums. We both had the same exact kit. I had the gong. He had the gong. <clears throat> and I, I often wonder what the audience thought when we, we did alternate billing, where some nights they opened up, some nights we opened up. And the drum set will be on the stage. They take it off. Then they bring the same exact drum set again out for whoever was playing next. And I often thought with the audience, so why, why are they doing that? They just took that drum set off. The, yeah. Nobody had the names on the drums so often. You know, so it was pretty funny. But on, on that tour, he played double bass drum. At the end of that tour, Robert and Jimmy said, you know, you're too busy. Take away that one bass drum. He said, we liked you better on one bass drum. When that happened, the Led Zeppelin drum kit was blown. Phenomenal. Love hearing these stories. A lot of, a lot of good history there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I spoke to loads of drummers over, over the, the series, and um, I love hearing from the drummers' union, likes of Simon Kirk and Bev Bevan, who are obviously good friends with, with uh, Bonzo as well. And it's just nice to hear these kind of things that go on in the background. Was it uh, Chris Welch? Remember Chris Welch, the writer, the melody maker? He wrote a book called Thunder of Drums. And in the book, it talks about when Bonzo yeah, yeah. came to America and then, and played with us, I went back and he was all raving about hanging out with me and all that, you know, because, you know, they weren't big yet, you know. And him and Cozy, pal, were talking and hanging out together because they from from Birmingham, you know. When I read that, I, I you know, I was like, you know, I don't know how to react, you know, because, you know, it came out when Zeppelin was huge. <laughs> and you know, and there I'm looking at it and, and seeing how Bonzo was reacting because you know I, I'm I'm always the type of guy when an opening act I make friends with him you know I like I like you guys when I was at Ozzy the opening act was Molly Crew I hung out with Tommy Lee and all the guys got to know them they're from LA hung out with Tommy you know and 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 he did a bit thing where he spun the stick grabbed the symbol like I do and I said where'd you get that he said from John Bottom. I said, well, you, indirectly, you got it from me because it's an hour, dude. I got it from Bonzo. So after the tour, I took I, I back to my house and I showed him two Ed Sullivan videos that were around before Led Zeppelin with me doing that kind of stuff and, and, and Shotgun doing like the end of rock and roll and Shotgun, you know? And he was like blown away. He said, dude, I can't believe you did this first. I said, I, said, I told you. <laughs> but, you know, but me and John Bonham, we were good friends. So we, I loved the guy. Uh, we had fun on the road. One time, he, and, and Robert and Jimmy do the some uh, the bow and the vocal, ah, 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 yeah. all that stuff. John Paul Jones and Bonzo will come off the stage. You know, one time, Bonzo comes and says, hey, why don't you and Tim go up instead of me and me and John Paul? I said, okay. So we went up, and we knew the song. You know, when you're on tour with everybody, you know, tend yeah. to know the arrangements. So it was like, we're playing. So Robert singing, he looks over, sees me and Tim, goes over to Paige and elbows him and goes, Oi. <laughs> okay, we just continued the song. And then when we went on, they all came up and jammed shotgun with us. Oh, fantastic. Those are the good, those are good old days when it was fun, you know? Oh, man. Just love hearing all these stories. It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, someone else I want to hear about as well, Jeff Beck. I mean, you worked with, with Tim and Beck and yourself, BBA. Yeah, yeah. Short-lived project initially, but talk to me about, about Jeff. I mean, what was he like to write with and, and, and perform well, Jeff, with? Jeff, Jeff was a very, 
I don't know. He wasn't very outgoing to a lot of people, you know, but a little introverted, but a really nice guy. I love Jeff. We were both into cars. We all into cars, me, him, and Tim, and motorcycles. And Tim was motorcycle. Me and Jeff were cars. And, uh, you know, he was a great player. He loved me and Tim. And when, when the album came out, he had it mixed with Don Nixon. And I said, man, why, why is the guitar so low? I want to hear the guitar. Because I want to hear you and Tim, you know? But, uh, you know, we have a friendship that goes, you know, way back to 1968 when we met him. He was uh, he had the same attorney as Vanilla Fudge. And we did a Coke commercial that I was singer, uh, I'm saying a guitar player got sick. So Jeff was in town and Jeff played on the Coke commercial with us. He was just coming up. I was Jeff Beck group. The truth album was just coming out. Yep. And, you know, he wasn't that famous yet. And other than the, the Yardbirds, you know, and it was great the way he played Wild on. I think it was awesome. So the rest of the Fudge guys were going, wow, this is awesome. And then we found out in 69 from John Bonham that Jeff wanted to play with me and Tim. You know, because we did a gig in Long Island. It was, it was a Jeff Beck group. Uh, it was a weird bill. Edwin Hogan's singers, you know, All Happy Day. Not a Christian kind of song, you know. Okay. And then 10 years after, Jeff Beck group and Vanilla Fudge. You know? And then when Jeff Beck group was on, Zeppelin went up and jammed them with him right before we went on. And they're like, come on, how do you follow that, you know? And then that's when we were on tour with them and they were bigger and the album was gold, you know. And that night, Jeff Beck, uh, John Bonham said to me, he said, you know, Jeff wants you to play with you and Tim. Here's Jeff's number. <laughs> so that's what started it, you know. I mean, Jeff didn't even come up to us and say it was John Bottom, you know, because Jeff was always so shy, you know. He's gotten better now, you know, but he's, uh, he's good. And, you know, we went to a lot. I, I originally played on Blow by Blow. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't work out. I remember I used to listen to Ma Vishnu Orchestra and Billy Cobb Mountains in the car with me and Jeff driving. And Tim was in the other car with the tour manager. And, you know, and we, we both loved that stuff. And, you know, and then when Blow by Blow was uh, rehearsing for that, we didn't know if it was going to be a Becca Peace album because Tim was, yeah. Tim basically quit. But I, but I loved Jeff and I, I hung out with him in England for three months. So I, I played with uh, also, after I rehearsed with Jeff, I would play with Ray Gomez and Rick Gretsch in Traffic. Yes, and yeah. uh, and uh, eventually I brought Rick over to uh, U.S. and we put a KGB band together, Mike Bluefield, you know. But uh, yeah, so I was rehearsing with Jeff and we were doing Blow by Blow and in the studio with George Martin, I cut like six tracks and we couldn't work a deal out yeah. with with Epic and 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 uh, Jeff's manager and all that. So I ended up not being on the record and I was like bummed out because mm -hmm. I really loved that stuff. Yeah. You know, and then the record, I went back to L.A. and I actually got a record deal myself doing the same stuff. I got Max Middleton on keyboard and Verdine White from Earth, Wind & Fire and Jeff Haslip on, Jimmy Haslip on bass and Dick Wagner on, on guitar and was instrumental, half instrumental and half vocal, just like blow by blow. But CBS wouldn't release it. So they said, I'm not known for that. And then blow by blow comes out and skyrockets yeah. to the charts. I was like, you know, I said, I was on that record, you know. But <laughs> hey, life goes on, you know. It and does indeed. Just keep going, you know. And so and then I, I 
I, I went to the, I did the KGB thing and then that didn't work out. And then I joined Rod. Indeed. So. I mean, you, you mentioned joining Rod there. I mean, how did that all come about? Because you were with him for, was it four studio albums? Um, actually, it was uh, by accident. Um, when I was in, when I was playing with Jeff and uh, doing rehearsing the Blow by Blow, I did a couple of gigs. One of them was with uh, John Lowe and Tony Ashton, the last of the big bands. And uh, on that gig was Phil Chen, and on that gig was Jim Cregan. Oh, yeah. And then I worked with Phil Chen on Blow by Blow. So one day I'm walking in L.A. after all that, and uh, I ran into my friend Sandy Gennaro, drummer. I said, hey, Sandy, how are you doing? And he said, good. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I just auditioned for Rod. I didn't make it. You should call him. I said, really? Who'd you call? So he showed me the guy's name, Pete Buckland. I said, oh, Pete, we did 30... 35 gigs with faces and cactus. We used to wreck hotel rooms and abuse women and did everything, <laughs> wreck cars and did everything together. And Pete was at the helm of it all. So I said, I'll oh, give me the number. So I called Pete and I said, hey, Pete, it's Carmine Peace. What's the deal? You, Rod's looking for a drummer, you don't call me? And he says, ah, oh, you're always busy. I said, well, I'm not busy now. I'd love to play with Rod. You know, let me call Rod, he's in England. So he called Rod and Rod, Rod told him, have Carmine go to my house. The band is there. They're looking for a drummer. Have him, me, check it out. So it was almost like, have Carmine check the band out, see if he likes it. I said, whoa, that's pretty, that's a switch. And I said, I've known Rod now. You know, this was, I've known Rod since 68, and this is like uh, almost 10 years later, you know? And we did a lot of gigs together with Cactus and Face as well. So I went to the house. I figured, well, I'm going to Rod Stewart, so I'm going to bring a good car. So I had a Pantera at the time, which is now in England. A guy bought it in England, and he's redoing this Pantera, totally restoring it for car shows. Nice. And since I had that car for 40 years, he's going to call it the Carmine Peace Pantera. <laughs> and I'm going to tell him about all the people that wrote in it, like Ozzy <laughs> and Rod Stewart and Prince and all these different oh, people, wow. Jeff Beck, you know. Anyway, so I, I drove the Pantera to Rod's house. I pull up through these gigantic gates. I said, whoa, I didn't know Rod was this successful, you know? And I pull in, and then I go in, and I see Phil Chen. I go, hey, I didn't know you were in the band. And I, I meet Jim Cregan. He was in the band. I met him in England. And so so we had a play. It sounded good. And also, yeah, I had to had have this in my head as soon as I went in there. I saw the mansion. I saw, you know, Porsches and Lamborghinis and all these cars. And I said, I want to play here. I want to play with this band, you know? And, and we went in and had a play and it was, it was good kick-ass, like cactus kind of rock and roll, you know? So two days later, Rod comes back and I go back up there and we have a play with Rod. And then Rod just came over and said, look, the gig's yours if you want it. So play like you did in cactus. I'll give you a solo every night. I know you have fans, and I'll, I know when I come back, your fans will be rocking after your solo, and I'll use that to go freshen up again, you know? I'll say, fine. And that, that's it. Phenomenal stuff. And and what I like about this is yeah. the fact that you weren't just a drummer. I mean, you've, you've never been just a drummer. You've, you, your vocal's in there as well, but you, you helped to, to write yeah. songs as well, didn't you? And we're talking some of Rod Stewart's yes. biggest ever songs. I mean... By chance, I, I co-wrote The Thing I'm Sexy. It was like, you know, Rod was a really fair, good dude. I love Rod. I still, I just saw him a month ago down here and, uh, in Florida. And 
you know, I went to his party, 70th birthday party, and, and I love Rod. He's a good guy. He wrote the intro to my book, Stick It, yep. My Life is Sex, Some of Rock and Roll, which you can get on music sales and all. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's always been good to me, and, you know, I tried to do the same with him, you know. When I worked with him, I did background vocals. I arranged background vocals and stuff. And then he's, one day he came up to everybody and said, I want a song like Missing You. So whoever can give me a song like Missing You, you know, you got it. I said, all right. So I went home. I have a keyboard. And I was playing these changes and drum machine. Then I went to my buddy Dwayne Hitching's house who had a, an eight-track studio, TX studio with drum machines and all. So we made it sound, he made it sound good. And then he added a little bit for the bridge. You know, so we gave it to Rod and we won. You know, we got it. And we went in the studio. And the great thing about Sexy is when we went in the studio and cut it, we had three guitars, bass, drums, uh, and Dwayne on keyboard and Rod vocals. It was pretty rock heavy, you know? Yeah. It wasn't disco-y. You know, even though it had that four in the bass drum, you know, that was the idea. That's you know, so did missing you, you know, and uh, and then Tom Dowd grabbed the whole of it. We put Tom Scott on it, put David Foster on it, put an orchestra on it, put Linda Lewis, Jim Jim Cregan's uh, now his ex-wife, singing the high part, and octave, two octaves up, and all kinds of stuff. Kunga players, and so all of a sudden we're on two twenty-four tracks instead of one, <laughs> so the sound shrunk. You know, so when it was done, it sounded like the way it sounded. And we were all like, wow, it sounds a bit wimpy, you know. But Tom said, trust me. Came out, went to number one in 10 countries. So <laughs> I guess he was right. Yeah. Well, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, so what was it like um, working with, yeah. with with Rod then? I mean, obviously on the road, the, the, the stories are pretty famous and legendary. <laughs> but great. what was it like being in the studio, writing songs and stuff with him? Well, you know, the band always came up with music most of the time. And, uh, and, and Rod wrote the lyrics and the melodies all the time. And sometimes he had songs that he wrote, like You're In My Heart. And uh, Rod always did the melody and the lyrics. And, and he always had great lyrics and great, you know, every song he liked were like sayings. You think I'm sexy. You're in my heart. Hot legs. Uh, passion. You know, every picture tells a story. I mean, I mean they're, they're sayings that everyday sayings that people, that's what made him so great, you know, and relatable by the audience because everything he sung about, people have said. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and talk to me about him as a front man as well, as, as a singer, as, oh, a, he was the as best. a stage presence. He was the best front man singer in those days, period. There was nobody could match it. Even my mother loved it. And she was <laughs> 60 years old, you know. The way he used to run all over the stage with the scarves and, you know, sing to the audience. You know, it was like all that, you know. I learned a lot from Rod, actually. You know, songwriting and, and stage presence a bit. Learning how to work an audience from him. He was, he was awesome. And he's still so great. Yeah, I mean, I was yeah, slowed definitely. down. I mean, come on, he's seven. Eight years old, there was, you know, I, I feel my speed on the drum slowing down and my pizzazz, all that stuff. You know, I had two shoulder surgeries. I mean, you know, but you know, it's just, uh, 
you created something when we were young, him and myself, and it's carried through our career. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, another big name I'd like to just touch on briefly is, is Osley Osborne. I mean, you talked with him quickly. during his... <laughs> yes, indeed. You talked with him on the uh, the Bark at the Moon album tour, didn't you? I mean, yeah. you and Ozzy got on well, but same couldn't be said for, for Sharon, could it? Yeah, no. I got along great with, with Ozzy and, and Sharon was... I don't I don't get it. I mean, <laughs> they called me. I didn't call mm-hmm. them. I, I agreed to play, do the tour and everything. I had a manager at the time, you know, I was, I was pretty big at the time, you know, my, yeah, yeah. I just come out of Rod and all those hits playing in front of, you know, 120,000 people in, in LA and I'm in all the magazines. I'm writing uh, articles for, for uh, circus every issue. You know, I was, you know, big, I had a big name going. I was a yeah. sonic spokes, spokesperson, you know, getting paid for that. I was a, uh, Mattel drums uh, was Mattel Sasonic drums was backing me. I had uh, a solo album out on Rod's label. You know, there's a lot of things going on, and and they called me and they said they they didn't like what Tommy Aldridge did on the record. They wanted me to come in and take over. You know, I said, "You want me to recut the record?" And they said, "No, we want you to go in in the studio with Ozzy and Tony Bon Jovi and help make the record sound better." You know, drum wise and all that. So can you come to London and play with the band? Sure. So I went to London. I was in I was in Cannes, France, doing a convention for for Sonic Drums. You know, <clears throat> I was on the beach. I was having a good time. You know, <laughs> and my wife at the time was with me, and so I went to London. My, my ex wife now she went home to L.A. And then uh, I was in. I played with the band. It was Jakey Lee. I knew Jake from L.A. Bob Daisley. I knew him from Rainbow. And Don Airy, I didn't know. And I knew Ozzy from Black Sabbath. I mean, when Black Sabbath did their first tour, we toured with them with Cactus. You know, we almost got in a fist fight with them, too, because somebody from Black Sabbath stole a bag of pots from us. You know, a little roadie and punched him in the face. You know, we were like this, like this with Ozzy and, and, and other guys with us. And our singer, uh, Rusty Day, he carried guns and knives and everything. So it wasn't a good, good idea to get in a, a, a scuff with him, you know? <laughs> but I mean, a lot of Ozzy laughed about that on the world tour and you know, together. But anyway, so I went to there, I played with him, and we agreed to do it. So Sharon talked to my manager, worked out a deal. <laughs> and my deal was I would have my own merch, mm-hmm. just a t shirt. And I was able to do master classes in America, which I was doing for charities. And I would play, like, we pull into a city, get a setup, I get a sound check. I get picked up by a store. I go to a music store, and I do a master class for 50 students, or 30 students, rather. And, you know, take an hour, hour, 15 minutes. I would just show them grooves and bring people up and sell my drum book, sign autographs, and leave. And I get back to the venue, and I totally like another hour before we go on. You know, I would have ate dinner by then. And it was good. So I was doing... A lot of those, and I was sold out, and I was giving money to UNICEF charity, yep. and I was making big money with that, and and I was making whatever I made with Ozzy and with the DMs and everything, and Sharon didn't like that, and I was I had my own publicist, too, and I was getting articles in every <laughs> city we went to because I was giving money to the charities, you know, that was the whole idea. My manager was a, he used to work with Kiss on the PR, and 
So he knew how to get a lot of PR, and I was getting a lot of PR, and she just didn't like it. She was pushing Jakey Lee, and I was getting more press than Jakey Lee. You know, so one time uh, in Cincinnati, I had a full page article in the, in the big newspaper and it talked about everything, you know, I was doing, you know, playing with Ozzy and playing with this and that and this and, you know, and then they said, what's the biggest effect in the show? And I said, well, it's, I think it's the drum solo because I'm up on a 15 foot riser and stairs coming down, the stairs open up, the drums come down on a track to the front of the stage. I finished the solo there. Explosions go up there on the balcony, and then I go back up. I said, but I didn't think of this, of this whole thing. It was Ozzy and Sharon's idea. Mm -hmm. It's their scheme, you know, their plan for the tour, not me. Whoever was playing drums would get this. So I come in that day after the mass class, and that article is all over the backstage, 30, 40 copies of it, just plastered all over, just to bust my balls, you know? <clears throat> I said, okay. And then my roadie kind of had my own tech. He comes up and says, hey, CA, he goes, all your T-shirts, the head was cut off of all your T-shirts. He's come on, what? are you kidding me? So I run up to uh, Robert, the tour manager, who's the Def Leppard's uh, drummer's brother. You know, mm -hmm. I say, Robert, what's going on? He goes, go talk to Sharon. <laughs> and, and then it was like, but you don't have time. We have to hit the stage in, in like 20 minutes. I said, okay. So I was like fuming, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I get up and stay playing the okay. show. My solo comes. Now, usually, just before the, the stairs start moving, the thing goes down, my roadie taps me on the butt so I'm not on the bass drum because it jerks and it screws up your bass drum. So I'll be on the snare drum. So he taps me on the butt. I'm 15 feet up. He's on a little ledge behind me, <laughs> tapping me. I'm playing on the snare drum, waiting for the thing to move. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. I just figured oh, it's, it's not going to work tonight. I did my solo from there. I got the same reaction I always get, except when the pyro went off, I was there. I shouldn't have been there. I felt the hairs on my arm sizzle, you know? So I got off the stage, and we got off the stage. Ozzy and Sharon were getting the bus with their kids, and me and the rest of the band were getting our bus. So I, I get to Bob Daisley. I said, Bob, do you think Sharon would sabotage her own show? to make me look bad because of that stupid article? He says, definitely, <laughs> without a doubt. So that's the only time that it didn't work. And then after that, she kept telling me that I'm tired after my master class, and I explained to her, there's no way I'm tired. And Ozzy would come up to me and say, before she was before we're walking <laughs> on stage, Molly Cruz opened it up, they're killing it. I said, come on, dude, let's kill it, you know? So then I saw Tommy Aldridge hanging around in, in, in Dallas and uh, the weekend in Houston. Played the last gig in Houston. Band was on fire and Robert comes up to me and says, again, says, hey, uh, Sharon wants to talk to you. So I'm going there. And she basically fired me. She said, your name is too big. You need your own band. And, uh, you know, so Tommy Aldridge is taking over on Monday. I said, Sean, I got a contract with you. She goes, well, we'll see you in court. And I said, I said, what about my journalist? She goes, well, I asked your roadie to stay. I said, he ain't going to stay with you. She's firing me, you know? She goes, you're right. He's not staying. So I, I, I told him he can drive the drums home. I said, no, I don't want to drive the drums home. You flew the drums out. 
I want the drums flown back to LA along with my roadie flow. I never did that. It was part of the lawsuit. Honestly, honestly, that's incredible. Terrible. <sighs> um, no, so, and you know, I have not talked to her since. <laughs> but things between you and Ozzy are still good, yeah? Yeah, I mean, uh, one time we, uh, Zach was doing his handprint on the Rock Walk of Fame in uh, L.A., and uh, I was talking to Ozzy. I was talking to Ozzy. He was going, oh, how are you kids? And I was everything. I go, good, how are you? I was having to talk to you. You know, he gave me a hug, and I gave him a hug, and we're talking. And all of a sudden, the security guard comes over. Ozzy, Sharon wants you. <laughs> she probably saw him talking to me. Yeah. You know? And then my brother played with Sabbath and when Ozzy was there. Yeah. And, and she says to my brother, you're a lot, you're a lot, lot nicer than, than uh, your brother. Well, I mean, I never did anything to her. Matter of fact, the first time I, I saw Ozzy and her, uh, we were on the bus and I see Ozzy and Sharon and, and we're in England in a rest area. And Ozzy just winged off and hit her in the face kind of thing. Like, I started getting up going, hey, dude. You know, started going out of the bus to like, well, what are you doing? You don't hit a woman like that. Um, and Bob Davis says, stay out of it. And then next thing I know, she's swinging right back at him, hitting him worse than he hit her. I said, oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> Jeez. So it was strange. Very. It was a strange time, you know. The band was great, you know, and uh, now Ozzy couldn't remember the lyrics. So he used to paste them on the back of Bob Day, of Bob Daisley. Yeah, but, but I loved Ozzy. He was a good man. Indeed, indeed. And then um, talking about big names, I mean, um, something I want to talk about is a series with well, the album that you did with some of the biggest guitar players on the planet. Yeah, um, Guitarzus. Awesome. Uh, Guitarzus. Yeah, yeah. I mean. It shows, to start with, the esteem with which you're held in the industry, the fact that you've got such incredible names, because we're talking Slash and Brian May and Richie Sambora, yeah. Neil Sean, Ingve's on there. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, where did where did the I, idea I, I for this project it, first begin for you? Well, well, the way I put it was like, I got every big name guitar player except Paige, uh, Paige uh, Beck, and Clapton. I got everybody else, <laughs> just about. Joe Bonamassa wasn't big yet, so I, I probably would have got him. Sorry, Steve, I I would have got, but he said he'll do the next one. Uh, it's just you know, it's just kind of like that Rod Stewart the way that happened. Coincidence, you know. I, I was playing with Bob Daisley, uh, Jeff Watson, and Joel and Turner. We had a group Joe, called Mother's yeah. Army. We were thinking about calling the group Zeus. You know, it, it didn't do anything anywhere in the world really, except Japan. Well, in Japan in the nineties. Because grunge was king and we were like dinosaurs, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're at Jeff's house. Jeff just got a solo album out on Mike Varney's label. He just came out of uh, Night Ranger. I've been looking for a deal now for 10 years since my 82 Rod you know, solo album when I was Rod. And I said, I said, it's ridiculous. You just come out of Night Ranger. You got a guitar record deal, an instrumental guitar record deal. I said, what do I got to do? A guitar record to get another solo deal? I said, you know, like I get a whole, I get a record deal. I get bring a bunch of my friends and I'll call it Guitar Gods. And I said, no, I'll call it Guitar Zeus because that Zeus was on my mind. I said, Guitar Zeus. And we all laughed, you know, it was all of us there and I was hanging out laughing. And I went to bed that night and I said, that's a freaking good idea. You know, a drummer doing 
a guitar album and get it out, then I can do guitar magazines, drum magazines, and I could do rock magazines, you know, in the PR. So I just got to find somebody who can put this thing together. So it took about two years from then. You know, that was 92. It was, so in 94, I, I met a, a manager who managed Doug Aldridge. <clears throat> and uh, before Doug was famous, mm-hmm. one, the, one of the worldwide things he did was my guitars. But he turned me on to his manager who got me a deal out of Japan. Right? A big deal, like 140, 50, 150 grand, something like that. So I said, wow. But in the interim, I'd run into Brian May at a clinic at a, guitar, a house of guitars in Buffalo, Rochester. I said, if I did this album, would you play on me? He said, sure. <laughs> I ran into Ted Nugent. He said he would do it. I ran into the King's X guys. As they were hot at the time, I said, you know, uh, if I can get those guys, it'll bring on a lot of other people. And they all said they would do it. So finally, when I got the deal, I called them all. And and I had to find somebody to write songs with. And I knew I wanted to use Tony Franklin because I loved Tony with Blue Murder, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, Kelly Keeling was in Blue Murder. And we went to Japan in 94 to do uh, a tour after the second Blue Murder record came out. We were all out of Blue Murder. John Sykes was going there as Blue Murder. So we went to Japan as a super session. And we played Blue Murder songs. And then I realized how talented Kelly was as a guitar player, singer. So I recruited him and I sat with him and I worked on songs. And then, uh, you know, we we came up with the the songs and I got Tony to play bass. And then I started calling people, sending tapes out. I got Brian, Ted, and the the uh, King's X guys first. And then Kelly was working with Ingve and Ingve said, I want to do it. So I flew to Florida, got him. And then when Ingrid got on it, then I heard from Slash, and Slash came in, and I heard from, I got Elliot Easton in, I got this one and that one. And, you know, so before me that one, I had this amazing amount of people. You know, I had Leslie West, Jennifer Patton, yeah, yeah. Steve Moss, you know. It was incredible. And I said, wow. And then the record did fantastic worldwide. I sold like 150,000 records worldwide. You know, yeah. I went to Europe. I did a massive European tour, uh, promotion tour on television. And, and it was on Koch label. I even got royalties, you know. <laughs> and they gave me a big uh, deal. I got a deal in France. I got a publishing deal with France, publishing deal in Europe. Next thing I know, we're doing one, number two. <laughs> and I got everybody in number two. Then I did guitars in Korea, just with <laughs> Korean guys. Guitars used Japan, yeah. just Korean, uh, Japanese guys. And they, I said, wow, I really created something here. Now, in, in November, the 25th anniversary box set's coming out. Yep. And I got three new tracks. I got Kiss, uh, Tommy Thayer on it. I got me, Tony, and Kelly. Mm-hmm. Tommy Thayer on it. I got uh, Derek Sheridan playing, like, guitar on the synth, <laughs> you know. And I got a new kid named... Uh, Christopher Brigiani, who plays on a group called a manager called Kodiak. He's just like Van Halen. It's like Eddie, you know. And then we got other songs that like Bumblefoot and a few other guys that can come out. And I put one of the Japanese guys on. It's going to be 37 tracks. It's going to be some tracks without any any guitar, some tracks just with the vocal and the track, you know, we meet Kelly and Tony. <clears throat> a new booklet with interviews with guitar players. Uh, an autographed photo of me with my new look, blah, 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 a medallion, a T-shirt, wow. you know, and it's a whole, whole 
guitars use Voxen. And I said, wow, I can't believe this is still going, you know? Phenomenal. All from that stupid idea. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, did you get to be in the studio with these guys at the same time? Because are you going to break my heart here and tell me that they all did it remotely? A lot of them. A, a lot of them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the ones I did with Brian, because Brian was in Europe. Uh, I, I was in with Ted, I was in with Ingve, I was in with Slash, I was in with uh, Richie Sambora, I was in with Steve Moss. No, no, I'm sorry, Steve Moss did his in, in Atlanta or wherever he is. Uh, but most of them, I'd say three quarters, I was in the studio with them. <clears throat> it was awesome. So speaking about that project, it touches on your new project as well. I mean, APP, a piece, Padermo project. A new album came out a couple of weeks ago, Energy Overload. It's just what we'd expect, big ballsy and rocking. I mean, tell us about the album. Tell us about Fernando as well that you're working with. Yeah, well, Fernando, I never heard of before until Tom Dowd's daughter called me and said, there's a guy that wants to work with you. And he was working with my dad. And, uh, you know, are you interested? I just moved to Florida. I just set up a studio on my house. And I said, yeah, I'm interested. You know, I thought it'd be a good way to learn how to work the studio. I'm in the studio now. And so we talked and I sent him a piece of music that I had on my iPad that I wrote. He sent it back to me with the stems. I said, wow, this is great. I put the drums so we had to mix it. This is great. Let's do another one. I sent him another one. Sent it back. It was great. Did another one. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. 18 tracks later, I said, let's get this, some of this out. So I called Cleopatra, put the deal together. And, and even some of the ways we did it, I sent him drum tracks. I said, write to the drum tracks, see what you come up with. Right? And like uh, Flower Child, uh, the uh, Broken Speaker Boogie, and uh, Pure Ecstasy were done to drum tracks and, and Rocket to the Sun. And they came out yeah. fantastic. And the funny thing happened, I have a show called Hanging and Banging with my brother every Thursday night. We have all rock people on. We had Susie Quattro on, you know. So the next oh, day, yeah. Su Susie was emailing me, and, and she asked me if I would play on the next album. I said, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I know it from the old days, from the Beck, Watch uh, mm -hmm. Do It days. Well. So she said, send me something that you played on recently. So I sent her the song Flower Child from the album. She emailed me back. She goes, I love this song. I love this song. I want to write lyrics and melody to it. Do you, do you mind? I said, I don't feel free. So she emailed me yesterday and said, please send me the stems. I want to, I want to you know, <laughs> write to the song. I want to write to your track. I said, great. So we sent her the stuff and we'll see where it goes. But um, I'm looking forward to playing on her record. I, I, I always loved her. I thought she was a, a rebel. You know? Yeah, yeah. Loved We've it. had her on the show here. She's, she's and, a force of nature for sure, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, and, and this album is like a progressive rock album. It's not like, like Blow by Blow is more like a jazz rock album. This was like more rock, progressive rock jazz, a little touches of jazz. Uh, you know, playing, improvising, jam band, progressive kind of rock. And you know, like Fernando would send me something in 6-8, and then I would play the up-tempo 4-4 against it to make it really strange, but it sounds together, you know? And we never had arguments. It would always be like, well, let's try this. Okay, we'll try that. Sure, let's do that. That was great. And we got so much music still. And uh, we're just releasing now. Uh, we just finished the video for Flower Child. So uh, that's going to be coming out in the next few weeks with Laura Cleopatra. Uh, and I love it. I mean, he's a good guy. And, and 
And with the name of Peace Perdomo Project, it's app. So you got to get your app now. Get Download your <laughs> app, you know? <laughs> Very cleverly done indeed. Now, if, you're, if anyone wants to see um, the first video as well, that Rocket to the Sun, that came out um, yes. a couple of months ago, the video to that, so people can check that out. But as I said, the album Energy Overload is out now. So so get out there and buy it, stream it, whatever it is that people do yeah, these days. And you can get, you can get, anybody can get that. Uh, yeah, it costs a little more from England, but you can get it on my website, autographed and and uh, my book called, you know, a lot of different stuff on carlinapeace.com. Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Carmine. Cool. It's been lovely hearing all your stories and uh, hopefully get to get you over in the UK at some point again. Yeah. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let's do it again. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Man. Okay, mate. Ciao. Bye-bye. What a man, what a life, what a storyteller. And honestly, that's just scratching the surface. We barely even mentioned Cactus. We never spoke about some of the other bands he worked with, like Pink Floyd and Michael Schenker and Ted Nugent. I hope you enjoyed that interview, I really do. Now, if you did, then give it a little share. Tell people about the show. Spread the word about Vintage Rock Pod. Each week, I have a huge guest on telling rock star stories, all worth checking out. This is episode 43. I've had 10 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers on so far. Now, it's that time of the program, though, where we find out my top fives, and it's where I give you my favourite five songs from the artist or band of the artist that I've just interviewed on the show. This is my personal choice. I don't claim it to be the definitive list. It's very subjective, and hopefully it maybe opens some doors for anyone who may not be overly familiar with the group in question. Now, there's loads to choose from when we talk about Carmine. So here we go. I'm going to take it back to the very beginning and go with my favourite five songs from Vanilla Fudge, according to Vintage. Rock Pod. Number five is from 1968's Renaissance record, a cover of a Donovan song. Many have covered it, but the vanilla fudge version remains the best. And number five is Season of the Witch. At number four is another track from the Renaissance album. It's gripping, it's tense, it's got a real moody feel to it. And number four is Where Is My Mind? Number three is a cover of a Beatles track, slowed and darkened, as you'd expect. I love how it builds towards the end, and the do they, do they, do they bit that repeats over and over. Brilliant. Final song on their debut album, Vanilla Fudge. And number three is Eleanor Rigby. Number two for me is a third track from the Renaissance album, the opener in fact. It's raw, it's rocking, and it's a great example of the hard rock and psychedelic scene of the late 60s. Number two is the sky cry when I was a boy.
And at number one, it has to be the big one. It's just so them, so vanilla fudge. They took a hit from another genre and they owned it. Check out the version they did on the Ed Sullivan Show. It's brilliant. My favourite track of theirs, and the number one vanilla fudge song according to Vintage Rock Pod is, of course, You Keep Me Hanging On. There you go, my favourite five songs from Vanilla Fudge, pioneers of that hard rock sound that really became a staple for many British groups like Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Uriah Heep and many others. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree or disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. And please check out Vintage Rock Pod on social media as well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's where I share short videos and clips and pictures and things like that. And also on YouTube as well, where I post some of the video interviews for you to see too. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all those platforms and you'll be able to find me. Give me a like, a follow, a subscribe, say hello, all that sort of stuff. It would be great to hear from you. Also look out for the Pantheon Podcast Network. Vintage Rock Pod is now proudly part of the network of music podcasts, which has just released a series narrated by the one and only Roger Daltrey of The Who. It's called The Real Me Podcast and is part of the Who Cares Teen Cancer America program. Definitely check that one out. And look through all the other fantastic series on the network too. Just look for Pantheon Podcasts Network. Well, that's it for this week's show, then. It's been a bumper one. More big-name guests still to come on the following weeks. More rock and roll stories, episodes released each Monday. If this is your first listen, make sure to follow or subscribe to the series so you don't miss any, and go back and listen to some of the fantastic interviews from throughout the series. If you're a big fan of drummers, I've got loads of those. If you like bass players, I've got plenty of them. If you like guitarists, I've got some of them. If you want lead singers, yep, we've got lead singers. I've even got a yodeler. Yes, say no more. Until the next episode then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.